Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you so feel free to leave us a rating or a review. Our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Dermot Bulger, one of Ireland's best-known writers. He's a novelist, a poet and a playwright. He's published 10 poetry collections and written a host of plays, such as the Ballymun Trilogy and an adaptation of James Joyce's Ulysses, which was staged by the Abbey Theatre. His previous novels include The Journey Home, A Second Life and Tanglewood, and his 14th book, called An Arc of Light, is on shelves now. Dermot, An Arc of Light is actually a continuation of a novel you wrote nearly a decade ago called The Family on Paradise Pier. And it's a continuation of a conversation that I have been having or had with a remarkable woman starting in 1977 when I was 18 and hitchhiked across Ireland and met this extraordinary woman called Sheila Fitzgerald who lived in a small caravan in a field in Mayo. And on that very first night, she began to tell me her life story. And like many wonderful storytellers, her story is so brimmed with um, moments uh, that very often she wouldn't finish one story, but she'd begin another. So uh, in 19 and she always wanted to be a writer but she never got around to writing her memoirs and in 1992 just before my second son was born I realised I wouldn't get out on parole very often after this <laughs> so I went down to Mayo and uh, to Wexford where she had moved to and I spent three nights taping her life story with her with an aim to writing a book uh, and so this book has been more or less uh, I've been writing this particular novel Narco Life for 13 years but in some ways it's almost like the culmination of 40 years of, of friendship and 40 years of, of uh, trying to understand her life. And what I found quite interesting is you were 18 at the time mm-hmm. that you met her, quite young. She was 73, so quite unusual for that sort of friendship. 73 seemed an impossibly old age for me when I was 18. I began to buy the Irish Times to check the debt notices, which, which was a really expensive expensive uh, uh, habit that I acquired for many years. And because, it, you know, when you are 18, it's very hard to conceive. I remember doing Yeats's poem amongst school children, eight, a six-year-old smiling public, public man and, and those ages but yet that in every generation there are certain people who stand out from the crowd from the herd who are remarkably independent thinkers and Sheila Fitzgerald was that and on that first night I remember her caravan was crammed with books and I slept on the window seat and there were um, four editions of D.H. Lawrence's poetry but also there were books on Andy Warhol and there was and there had somebody who was totally immersed in life who had suffered endured terrible personal tragedies but who had steadfastly clung to the right to be happy. And was it that her life was so totally different maybe to yours? Her life was fascinating for me as a young man and the openness with which she talked about her life and she began uh, in a fairly average Anglo-Irish family in Donegal in Bond 903. Her eldest brother uh, Neil became a communist and gave away uh, all of his, everything that he inherited to the work 
Workers' Union of Ireland, which was the Code of the Communist Party. Her youngest brother, uh, Brian, died in the Soviet Gulag. He's one of only three Irishmen. He, he went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. He doesn't turn up in Christine Moore songs. He was a, a fell out with his Soviet uh, superiors and was lured onto a ship in Barcelona and was disappeared um, and died in a, a Gulag in 1941. When I met Sheila, she didn't know if Brian was alive or dead because the Soviet Union was like something you disappeared behind and didn't know. Uh, and her children uh, lived in Kenya and lived in London. And, but, and, uh, so so she exotic had, though, she, she, in a way. She, she, in some ways, looking at Sheila's life was like looking at a history of the 20th century. And, and so the first book I wrote, A Family on Paradise Pier, was about the first half of her life um, and, and her brother's life. And so it was an Irish novel, but it was set in sort of in, 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 in Spain during the Civil War and set in sort of uh, in Moscow and, and during the purges, but also set in Donegal and Mayo. And this is a quieter book and it's just about a woman who makes the very, very brave decision uh, in 1949 to separate from her husband uh, and, and having raised her children to embrace the right and the chance to be happy and to embark on this life of discovering who she actually was as a person. A, a, a journey that continued until she died in the year 2000 at the age of 97. So why did you decide then to write the second book? Was it just that there was still more to tell? There was a lot more to tell and, and this is a different sort of book. The, the both books are quite totally independent of each other. There's certain, I mean, the characters uh, are the same characters, but their stories are very different. And in some ways, uh, when Sheila separated from her husband after the war and when her brother went to Moscow and her other brother was dead, that that, that, that wider Gould Vashile story was over. And this is more of, of her as a woman on her own, uh, ma- making her way in life and actually not having, um, trying to teach child art in Dublin. Her pupils included Paul Dawkin as he, as, as as a young child, trying to be a writer, uh, trying to be so many things and realising in the end inadvertently that, that she'd become a great inspirer of so many people from myself to the artist Pauline Buick to the poet Paul Dokken to the poet Richard Morphy to uh, Camel Souter who was a lodger in her house to all these people whose lives she touched and in some ways she led a very quiet life in a small field in a caravan and yet in some ways she was an inspiration to so many people that she came across. And did she get a chance to read any of it? No. Uh, be, I, I did publish a small book of her sketches uh, with Raven Arts Press which I ran many years ago but in some, in some ways but it, it was a case also is that strange very to write a book like this like an arc of life is to most books you're judged by the living you're judged by critics and reviewers and and that's fine this is to be judged by the living and the dead because you are aware that you are dealing with with real people even though you're inventing um, your own creation of them and that it's a very difficult book you have to make a lot of moral choices in terms of how you write the book and also you discover for Sheila, for myself, or for all of us, possibly, that very often we don't understand our own lives. That I began to, as I began to research Sheila's life, I discovered things that she didn't know about her own life, about her own family. And so you're trying to actually sort of um, write from her perspective, uh, while at times not knowing anything near what she did know, and at other times knowing perhaps more than she did know. And and so it, it, it's that's why. This book has taken me 13 years to write and I've put it away in a drawer for three, four, five years at a time and, and then come back to it. And, and I always felt, but in some ways it's the, the last book I need to write. And it, and I felt that, that duty to tell that story going back almost that first night in 1977 when we sat by candlelight in our caravan in Mayo. Are you happy with the end result? 
Uh, writers are never happy. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't go to territory, you know. I, I think I probably have it as good as I can get it. So let's go back then. You're a dub, obviously, through and through. You're from Thingless. What was your, your childhood like? My childhood was, was very pleasant. Um, I grew up in quite a... Uh, uh, that odd... I think to be on the margins is very, very good. To be that, that, That's why Canadians are more interested in American South. Very true. And with totally songwriters and everything else. And I think that you grew up on the margins of the city and the margins of the country. And many of my... Most of my neighbours were country people. The houses were built in 1948. My mother was from Monaghan. My father from Wexford. They came to Dublin. Uh, they actually originally rented a, a top flat of the house where Elizabeth Bone was born. And my sister June Constein, who's a very fine writer as well, was discovered crawling on on the window ledge with a sheer drop of four floors and my mother said we've got to go somewhere quiet and they were building houses in this small village called Fingness and they went back to the country not realising that the city was about to follow them out there. So uh, you're not a dub at all then if, you're, if your parents are from Monaghan and Wexford. I've always, had, I've always never like, quite believed the mythology of the, the true dub whose great 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 grandfather contracted nefarious social diseases from Molly Malone if rumours of a sideline occupations are to be believed. Uh, all cities uh, infused by new blood and so I am uh, Wexford I am Monaghan and I am Fingless and, and none of them are quite Dublin And was there any writing in your family before that before you? Um no, my father, my grandfather was a printer in Wexford, on the Wexford side, and used to send my father out when my father was a young boy to get a good book every Friday night. He would say, go around and find me a book. There was no lending library. And uh, my father would have to go around knocking on neighbours' doors and asking for a book and checking what's the good book. And my grandfather would send it back on the Monday with his comments. And my grandfather was the only person in Wexford to read The Observer, which was sent down on the, on the train from Easton's. But no, it wasn't. But I, my sister June left school quite early and used to have dreams of blank sheets of paper and under the name of Laura Elliott is now like a really good selling writer uh, and so I, I think that the opportunity to write possibly didn't arise my my brother Roger would have been of course one of us to do the leave insert free second level education came in and it really revolutionised that was the Raven generation was about people like Fintan O'Toole and Colin Tobin and all those people coming through at that time you had that wave of people suddenly who not in Colin's case but in another case mightn't have gone to second level education it was suddenly sort of becoming new readers and new writers and I think that that sort of it, yeah, that free second level ed- education was a huge factor in the change and development of Ireland. And is that what influenced you then, school? Because I know you, I read somewhere that you said you wanted to be a poet when you were 12. Well, I, I had the notion of being a poet when I was 12 because my teacher read a poem that really, really moved me. Uh, but we didn't know anybody who had ever been, um, you know, who, who'd been... I had this notion that to be a poet, you needed to go to university, you needed a degree, you needed it felt a mission. Yeah, and of course, I, I, I realised very... It, it Slowly, there was a slow process of realisation that all, that the great freedom of poetry is that all you need is a pen and paper and the freedom of your imagination and nobody gives you permission and nobody, and you don't seek permission and uh, it is, it, and to me it's the ultimate way of giving two fingers to the world because the minute you begin to actually write words down, I think you begin to see yourself in a very naked light and as I say to young people you stop being a consumer and you become an, an individual because it's very hard to lie to yourself whether you're writing poems or keeping a diary or writing a blog or anything else and it's sort of, it, it is a very strange process of going into a room, sitting down with your thoughts and seeing yourself reflected back in them. And when did you start doing that? 
Probably when I was around 14, 15. But I had no notion that one could be published. Uh, and also I had no notion that you could write po- uh, novels because novels seemed impossibly difficult because at the age of 16, I began to go into the literary pubs of Dublin. But when I went in to meet these, these writers, they all made writing seem impossible. And they'd all written one experimental novel in 1951 or they'd had a play performed in a phone box in Paris in the, in, in, in the 60s. And, and they made it very mysterious. And so I sort of felt, I, there's no way that I can actually write novels or plays. And I realise what often holds people back is their own fear, their own fear, their own sense that, that, that writers are different than them. A huge influence was meeting Anthony Conan, a very, very great poet, a very, very great critic, a friend of, of Beans and Beckett's and Kavanagh's and so many other people. And Tony wising me up and saying, like, your poems are very, very good when I was 15, but why are they about such old-fashioned themes? Why don't you go and write about your own world? The city you inhabit is as much worthy of literature as the Bloomsbury set of ancient Greece and everything else. And some is, from that point onwards, I began to try and write about uh, Fingless and began to write about sort of my experience as a young Dubliner who's not so young anymore <laughs> and about people on the margins and some ways uh, the first novels like Night Shift and The Journey Home were very much about people in Fingers on the margins young people but in some ways a family like the Gould Vershoyle family who the Anarch of Light is about were also on the margins and that they were people who were uh, uh, who were looking forward to playing a new role a, a role in this new Ireland that was being born uh, out of the War of Independence and Civil War and then realised that that new Ireland had no role for them and did the writing come easy or did you have to work at it? Writing never comes easy and uh, one wakes every morning in a state of perpetual fear. Really? And Still? One, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it, it doesn't... I There was a wonderful actress was in many of my plays in the Abbey called Maroni Grania and I remember being in one of my plays and I went backstage very quite a Tuesday night in the Peacock Half a House and she was backstage. There was total darkness apart from two no-smoking signs and more of a cigarette as she swayed back and forth in absolute abject terror before going on stage. And I said, Maura, how long are you doing this? And she said, 44 years. And I said, but it gets easier. She says, it gets shag and hard, a homely cigarette. <laughs> and went on stage and was brilliant. And in some ways, uh, I feel that same pathological fear every morning I sit down at my computer. And you were 18 then when you set up the Raven Arts Press. I mean, that was a, a brave move given your age, but also the times. It was the late 1970s. So what, what caused that? I basically felt that, um, that there was... Um, a number of Irish writers and a section of Irish society and aspects of Irish society that weren't being explored in literature at the time. And you you, you have that witty arrogance of all young people have. Uh, and so Raven Arts was never a business. It was a, a loose movement for change. And it, it published some very interesting books and it published some books that vanished into obscurity. And uh, But how did you finance it though? Because it, it can't happen without money. We, we literally had no money. One of the great funny, the, 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 as we say this, the, the Pope has just left Ireland when we're recording this thing but the Pope came to Ireland originally in 1979 and it was a great benefit to us because every commun- every Maoist and communist university student became a capitalist overnight and they all began to print to, to, to print Pope posters and sell Pope posters on the street every window in Ireland had a Pope poster and when we put our first book together a book of poems by a writer called Sidney Bennett-Smith we went to a back lane printer in Rat Mines he took one look at it and he says not another bloody Pope poster and he <laughs> said no 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 it's actually a book of poems and he says I'll print it for free and really? we looked around and on the walls were just covered in Pope posters of uh, 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 obscure Popes pink Popes blue Popes yellow folks Popes and we got the printer by printer for nothing we collated the, the actual um, uh, the books you know, the pages by hand into sheaves we actually sort of um 
bought it on the back of a bicycle, Sir John F. Newman, book binders. We bound a book. We sold it around pubs. We had no idea of business. We had no idea of publishing. How we many just, did you sell, I wonder? Uh, of that first book, probably 500 copies, you know. Wow, that was uh, a lot uh, and, 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 and it wasn't a writer. The, the, the Arts Council had very much wanted us to be a community arts things. We said we will publish writers from things, but we'll also publish, we published Pier Paolo Pasolini, the Italian filmmaker. We published Paul Saland. And we published all kinds of, we pub, probably the most important book we published was The God Squad by Paddy Doyle, which was the first book about institutional child abuse in Ireland. And um, it was really hard to get a printer to even print it. I remember really? it was the week of my wedding we actually published them I spent most of my honeymoon uh, trying to put jackets on, on covers because it was so hard to get them actually printed and it became a huge success and in some ways it was one of those moments that opened that sort of wall of stories that, that, that sort of came out but we published a lot of poetry and and it was it was a great it was there was a sense that there was a new generation starting to make their voices heard and people like uh, Sebastian Barry and people like Sarah Berkeley and people like Owen McNamee and Patrick McCabe and and it was just great to be involved in all that we never made any money from it it wasn't about money it was just about uh, creating a forum where all of these people could have their voices heard and being part of of that community yeah. and your own first book then didn't appear until 1985 so what took you so long <laughs> uh, what took me so long probably I, I had books of poems published my first novel was published by Brandon in 1985 and I earned £281 for it which I eventually extracted from Steve McDonough with great difficulty who was the editor of Brandon uh, I think in some ways I had this notion that novel, novel were impossibly difficult and there's no way that, 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 that I could write a novel and but it was my memories of working in a welding rod factory in Fingers my first job and Night Shift is the welding rod's sole contribution to world literature it's the only book about welding rods ever ever written and uh, it was um, it, it just took me a long time to find my voice and to find the confidence to actually go and do that And how did you go about getting that publishing deal then with Brandon? Um, I sent it to Steve but I remember um uh, Tyrone Guthrie had died and left his house to the Irish nation I had moved on from the Welling Rod factory to working in the libraries I had become the worst library assistant in the history of Dublin County Council and I'd been banished to the, the Siberian salt mines of the mobile libraries to dispense largesse of mills and boons and westerns to the unsuspecting population of Rush and Lusk and Skerries and all those places and I discovered that this, his house opened and you could go and you could uh, write and be fed and I went up and I had all these memories. I actually had to go to um, a very famous Irish poet and say to him, as only one poet can another, do you know a crooked doctor? And he said, with literary pretensions. And I said, oh, he said, oh, yes, I do know one in, 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 in Dublin 8. And uh, for a signed copy of one of his books, this doctor I never met gave me two sixerts for my job. Oh, one for week A and one for week B. <laughs> right. And if I could find one of my friends sufficiently sober to send these in the right order, I got two weeks off work. It went in the wrong order. I got sacked and the doctor got struck off the rolls. It was a very high oh risk strategy. Right. But I went to Mana. <laughs> How I went, not to do it? I went to Tottenham Good Centre and I began to write down my memories of the Welling Rod factory. And there was a guy there from Northern Ireland who was giving up cigarettes. He was uh, drinking 7,000 cups of coffee a day. He was chewing his fingernails, chewing other people's fingernails. He came into my novel, into my room at two o'clock in the morning and began to read my novel. I thought he was going to chew it for traces of nicotine. And he said, this is a really good novel. And I said, well, 
I'm not a novelist. I don't have to write a novel. I'm just writing my my memories of the Welling Rod Factory and they're changing a bit. And he says, no, you're writing a novel. Admit it, get over your fear. You are a novelist. You're a natural novelist and this is a novel. And it and sounds like, right. you know, more than Anthony Cronin, that you nearly needed that encouragement. You needed oh, to I hear did. it. I needed that encouragement. I needed that sort of sense. I needed that kick up the ass. I needed someone to say to me, no, just get on and do it. And that's what I say to people. It is. And writers, I remember somebody phoning me from, um, or emailing me from, small cottage in Clare and they were writing their first novel and they were terrified and they didn't know if they ever wanted to finish it and and, and I said and I, I said to them I said two things I said firstly every writer who writes the Tour de France once they ride in the Sean Salisa they have won the Tour de France and you know, well, they've, it's, completed it's, it's, they've completed the whole thing they've gone over the Alps they've gone through all that pain and you've got to do that for yourself you've got to ride on the Sean Salisa you've got to finish your book and also you have been paid a, a million dollar advance for it by Penguin in America because it was Nuala O'Fallon who had had enormous commercial success with uh, I, I Use Somebody but was writing fiction and was equally as terrified as anybody sitting in a bed sit whatever writing their first novel because that fear doesn't go away no matter how well known you are or how many books you've written. Is that fear still there today? Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Every time? And I think if it wasn't I think you need fear and curiosity. You need fear so that you're, 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 you're in the same way as you need adrenaline to run a race or anything else and you need curiosity because we're all voyeurs at a certain level of the human heart and we want to know what happens next. And so when I go up to my desk every morning, I literally don't know what's going to happen next to my characters. But that's and exciting I, I, though, isn't it? And that's exciting. And, and that's the curiosity. And also I don't know if I'm going to be able to express it. And that's the fear. And those are the elements that you need to be a writer. And you've written books, poems, stage plays and radio plays, as we've said. So do you have a preference? They're all different. The poems, I mean, the Deista Manslan, who's also Manslan's wife, said that you know, a poet could spend his or her whole life writing and if they were lucky, they'd be remembered for one poem, one stanza, or one line. Maybe I'd be remembered if I remembered at all for one poem. I don't know what poem it would be. But they're all different. The poems are very personal. They're, they're like the 100 metre sprint. Uh, plays are collaborative things and they change the whole time and you're working with a whole company and if it doesn't work, you can always blame, blame the blame director. Blame somebody else. <laughs> Novels are like running a marathon and you actually have you're, you're going to go to the wall even like an arc of light 13 years of walking on it 13 years of coming to a brick wall and so I think that the one you feel most proud of is the novel because you have gone on that very very long journey and you have come through uh, whether it's good bad or different or anything else you, you, you completed have, it I have a feeling though talking to you maybe that poetry is probably your first love well poetry is the ones that the other ones you can induce you can actually go into a room you can be commissioned to write a novel or a play and you can make it happen you can't make poems happen you Yeats said that out of the quarrel with other people, we make rhetoric, and out of the quarrel with ourselves, we make poetry. And you are washing the dishes, you are walking the dog, and suddenly we, we, we were all having these rows in our heads, and one of those thoughts sparks with sudden electricity, and you just know that's the first line of a poem. You haven't sought it, you, actually have, you, you haven't chased it, it just comes to you, and you know that if you write it down, uh, if you don't, if you, like a dream, if you don't write it down, it will be gone. And, and you write it down that that so, so those poems are unexpected benedictions, and so you you always feel if you can write a good poem, it is it, it's a, it's a lovely feeling. And it might happen, it might might happen again in a week's time. It might happen in five years' time. And do you have the notebook and pen in the pocket all the time? I uh, never carried a notebook. I, I have little bits of paper, and and so in the National Library, I have my papers. That's some of my papers anyway. And if you look at a poem, it begins as um twenty typed versions, but then it begins with like the back of of a Tesco. Uh, 
uh, wrapper or, so, or some paper. Or now, I used to walk them with my dog, Jack, and he was a very, very impatient wire her terrier. And the poems always came halfway down some road in Tonkandra. And I was trying to hold Jack hold with him. one hand and actually <laughs> write on some little bit of paper. So those first drafts of the poems are very, very incoherent. And how does your writing routine work then at the moment? Do you write every day or do you have a particular system? I write every day. I treat it as a nine to five job because I, I, that's what it is. Um, I remember meeting that wonderful poet Anthony Cohn who passed away around eight, 15 months ago and him saying to all of us in this, in this workshop we did in the People's College that writers lead really boring lives and we were all laughed. We thought we imagined you just lay on the floor putting cocaine up your left nostril while getting <laughs> checks from your agent. But no, writers lead incredibly boring lives. What you need to write is routine. I write, I've written in lighthouses, I've written in monasteries, uh, I'm going to be writing in some Italian castle in a little while. Do you need quietness? Uh, you need, you need quietude. But you can actually make that happen for yourself by simply picking a time, say half seven to eight on a, every night and saying, I'm going to my room and nobody can disturb me. You actually need, to me it's almost like you need to open an imaginary bed and breakfast in your mind and let the characters of your imagination know that if they want to check into that B&B at that time, that's something that, 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 that they can live out their lives there. And it's about create the creation of routine and the creation of the white space on the page that the words will come from. Because if, if you don't have that white space mentally, the words won't come. And when it comes to the novels then, do you plot or do you let the story unfold? I let the story unfold. Uh, plotting can be dangerous. I, I have really? a basic plot. Well, yeah. I mean, so something like this, the, the an arc of life, because it's based on a real life, I, I know where it's going. But 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 that's but that makes it more, even more challenging to make it come alive and everything else. But a lot of novels, I don't know. I mean, I wrote one novel on the Bailey Lighthouse called um, uh, The Valparaiso Voyage. I wanted to finish it by Christmas, and on Christmas Eve, I wound up still in the lighthouse not knowing how to end it in the watch room and I, I think I murdered eight characters in the last four pages I just said, said if it works, <laughs> for, if, if, if it works it. for Shakespeare it will work for me I just wanted to, to get home for Christmas but literally half an hour before it ended I had no idea how it was going to end And what do you read yourself? Uh, history mainly really? uh, and my son is a great historian and so my, my uh, I, the artistic director of the Abbey came to my house recently and he noticed that uh, the front room had editions of all my books in numerous languages and the the, that, so the back room and the front room where I write just had rows and rows and rows of history books and uh, Irish history uh, or Irish history and European global. history and things about and, and just factual things and he said I figured it out this is the inbox this is the outbox <laughs> because in some ways I, I, I love fiction but you don't you, if you, you if you take something from a novel you're stealing but if you if you take something from those, those wonderful little nuggets you find in history books that suddenly I say there's a whole novel in there It sparks something in you and we've a lot of new talent emerging in the writing world in mm-hmm. Ireland at the moment so what's your view on that? I think it's great I think I think it's great and I think in a lot of ways, I think that there was a sort of the whole Celtic Tiger almost like missed the generation that they were people so I think that you know, I talked about the, the white sheet the white space for the woods I think that people like I remember like Colm Tobin giving up his job to write uh, his first novel The South and taking a year to do it and having the space to do that and people maybe not having so much to give up where suddenly you actually had a generation who were suddenly being urged to be on the property ladder at 21 and everything else and in some ways I'm not sure that generation had the white space and I, and I think that sort of that 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 sort of suddenly you found that with that with the recession a lot of new writers came because they had the time to actually become writers and so but so you but what's wonderful is that you have um 
so many young writers but also a writer like Mike McCormick I remember reading his first short story years ago and the hair standing on the back of my neck and I mean like while I rejoice to see all these young writers make great uh, success I've been particularly pleased to see Mike McCormick who's now one of my heroes have used success with his with his last novel and, and writers like that David Park quietly getting on with it and Jennifer Johnston quietly getting on with it. So there's a wonderful mixture. Time will tell. Time throws all these books in the air and a certain number are remembered and it's impossible in the maelstrom of seeing all these books emerge to know what books were remembered and what books are not. But I think good books will come from this time. And you're quietly getting on with it as well. But uh, as you said, An Arc of Light is out at the moment. So what else are you working on? Uh, I am working on. Um, I don't really talk about what I'm what I'm oh, working on really? because Why? because because it mightn't happen. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Has, because it's very fascinating. Well, I remember reading um, uh, going back to literary magazines in the sixties and seventies, and all these uh, people in the biographical notes were mentioning all these books that never appeared. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, I, I don't make myself a hostage to fortune. Well, you mentioned meeting the artistic director from the Abbey there recently, so I'm wondering what what could be coming down the tracks there. Well, he lives around the corner, so he was just borrowing a cup of sugar. That's an excuse. That's an excuse. Dermot Bulger, thank you so much for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find Dermot's latest novel, An Arc of Light, in your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books IRE. If you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on SoundCloud or iTunes and don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production. 